through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Yes, you've come to Out of the Box every Thursday from midday to one. I get to sit down with one person and pry into their life stories and the music which have defined them. My guest today might have spent more time behind the lens than any other Australian artist. Ella Dreyfus is a photographer. On over 30 years in the Australian visual arts scene, she has created some confronting works. She deals with ideas as conceptual as masculinity to as real as the Holocaust and the shadow it has cast over her family history. Her father had fled Nazi Germany alone as a child. Now a senior lecturer and head of public programs at the National Art School in Sydney, her latest exhibition, Under 27, is a part, uh, part of Head On F- Photography Festival and it opens in Newcastle on the 1st of May. Ella, a warm welcome to Hi, Out Joey. of the Box. <laughs> Hello, Joey. Ella, how did your father manage to come to Australia as a lone 12-year-old? Joey, he was a really very lucky boy. Because if you think back to the horrific numbers, 1.5 million children, Jewish children, perished in the Holocaust, in concentration camps and other horrible places. And my father and actually his brother George, Richard and George, the two young boys, were um, lucky enough to escape Nazi Germany. Their parents managed to get them a passage on a ship, a kinder transport, children's ship. And there were, in fact, 17 little children in the group. And they were set, they set sail alone. Most of them never, ever saw their families again. And they arrived in Melbourne and were put in an orphanage and grew up there. What was the orphanage like? Do you know about that? Yeah, I've read quite a bit about it. It's written up in a number of books. And um, look, I believe the people who ran it were very kind to the children, but you can imagine how traumatised they were after having been uprooted from home, family, life they knew, different language, different culture. Uh, but many of them grew to adulthood there. And um, my father and his brother George were very, very lucky because their parents were amongst the only parents to survive. And they arrived in Melbourne the year later just before the war broke out. Only one year later? Yeah. What Um, had happened to them? Well, they had got out uh, just as war broke out and managed to um, fly a very crazy route up to Iceland and all around the world and arrived in Melbourne with very little, almost nothing. And um, they actually had to leave the boys in the orphanage because they had no money. They arrived with nothing. And eventually the... The people running the orphanage begged them. They said, please take your boys out of here because the other children simply cannot cope with seeing you visit every Sunday and these other children never had any visitors. And what had happened to them once they were taken out of the orphanage? Well, they all they all uh, lived together in Melbourne. The father, my grandfather, I never knew. He did die fairly soon after. But look, I'm very lucky. I had a relationship with my grandma, my German Oma, and I was very close to her. And she died when I was, how old? Early 20s. In Japan, actually. Do you know much of what had happened to the members of your family that hadn't made it out of Europe? Well, I've slowly been uncovering that. And, of course, there are not... um, We don't have records that go back very far. But, of course, the immediate family we do know about. So the... uh, My great-grandparents, the Runsenbergs, they did perish in two different concentration camps in uh, Theresienstadt and in Auschwitz. And uh, another one committed suicide the night before the Nazis were coming to deport her to a camp. And another one died of natural causes much earlier before the war. However, before then, I've got very little knowledge. What do you remember of your father as you were growing up, Ella? My father was um, kind but uh, driven. In fact, uh, as you mentioned before, I'm a lecturer and we do give out um, student surveys over the years and one of the comments (laughs) what do you think of your teacher one of the comments by a student about me was she is firm but friendly and I thought yeah I can live with that and also actually it describes my dad quite well very friendly very big community man but very firm and quite strict did he carry his Jewish heritage he did actually yeah he was um interestingly about he and his brother He embraced Judaism and became a fairly observant Jew and very involved in the community. But his brother George, who we might talk about more later, he actually rejected it completely. So they went in opposite directions. But yeah, Dad Dad went to synagogue. He was president of the synagogue. He was on all the committees and things like that. And um, we had quite a strong Jewish upbringing in the home. 
What did that look like? I um I could tell you the good and the bad sides of it, Joey. Please. <laughs> The bad sides really impacted my mother more than anyone else because actually Dad was a tyrant when it came to observing the Sabbath. And that meant every Friday at a certain time when the Sabbath was due to come in, which meant the sun was setting at whatever time it was in the calendar, he would suddenly ramp it up and say, right, finish that cooking, get the lights off, no more of this, no more of that, have you done the shopping? It was huge pressure and the whole 24 hours was actually a pressure cooker to observe the Sabbath and to be honest mum was not interested but she had to do it. So that was you know the challenging side. Uh, The good side was the family came together every Friday we did a lot of singing, we ate beautiful food so you know you've got the good and the bad. What do you remember of going to synagogue? I remember mostly um, hanging out with the girlfriends and gossiping up the back and beyond that I remember singing in the choir and I absolutely loved it and my friend Kerry Marks and I when we were only how old say nine and eleven we uh, gate crashed the boys choir we demanded went up to the rabbi and said let us into this boys choir why can't we sing in it this was a segregated synagogue Segregated as in, yeah, men and women sat differently and only men were allowed to participate in the prayer activities. Right, right, right. And when you were gossiping, was that, did that affect your father? Was he annoyed Oh, yes, about he was that? always turning around going, shh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> Ella, off the top of the show, what can we play in tribute to this part of your life? Oh, well, thank you, Joey, for the opportunity because I'd love to play Erev Shel Shoshanim, which is a song that was written in the 1950s and was really a pop song in Israel. But I grew up with it and it's got a beautiful melody. And last year I actually sang this song myself solo on the stage of the Sydney Town Hall for a Biennale of Sydney project run by the Japanese artist Akira Takayama. Tell me about that. Well, he put a call out to Sydney uh, for people to come along and sing a song from their cultural heritage. And he ended up having over 70 people perform in Sydney Town Hall solo, but to an empty auditorium, empty hall, because they were filming it. And um, he had 43 different language groups singing out of the 70 people. So I sang in Hebrew. What was the experience of singing a song that connected you so deeply to your father? Well, I'll tell you what happened. It was so exciting. Um, I didn't predict this, but as I walked along, he had a very long, it was called um, Our Song, Sydney Kabuki Project, and he was influenced by the Kabuki Theatre, which have long, long stages that go into the hallway. So we had to walk alone along a long platform onto the stage, stand there and sing, and a flash happened. I've got a visual just as I was about to open my mouth, I saw a vision of my dad sitting in the audience and he was beaming up at me, encouraging me. And I know how much he loves singing. So basically I sang to him. Dit Ella el habustan, urbesamim ulevana, lira gelech miftan. Et 
job as a photographer's assistant in a commercial studio and I had had a passion for photography in my high school years and uh, I think what happened was yeah I went overseas for a year did my gap year travels came back went to art school for about a term and it came time to um, I think it was Easter holidays and I just thought oh fuck that I don't want to do my homework I'm not going back there I'd just rather live in Redfern and smoke dope with my friends and uh, Dad said, forget it, you're getting a job. <laughs> Study or work for you. So he opened the paper and he found me a job. He knew I had an interest in photography. And it was really nice because he had a passion for photography and he'd had a darkroom as a young man as well. Anyway, so he opened up the paper and there it was. It said, uh, photographer's assistant, driver's license required. I got the job for JF Studio and uh, had a great year actually being the darkroom assistant, learned how to process films, develop films, work in the studio. And what was really good was that I was the runner, so I ran the jobs in and out. So I'd jump in the car, drive off to the ad agencies around North Sydney, Crow's Nest, St. Leonard's, that whole lower North Shore, bring the jobs back. And um, I got to meet a lot of people in the ad world, which is why I left. (laughs) Did you... um Tell, tell me about that process of photography moving from something that was just a job to being a, a passion, let alone an artistic one for you. Well, um, following that job, and actually I should tell you, I it got to a point where I just had to leave the advertising world because I could tell as a budding feminist that the values of advertising really did clash with the values that I was learning to love. How hard had you fallen into advertising? Well, the company was in it. It wasn't that I was in it, but I, I could see I spent a year in and out of the agencies, doing the jobs for the agencies, and I could just see the um, commercialisation. I mean, look, there was a lot of creative work going on into making the photographs, but ultimately you were just promoting a product. And one that really gave me the shits was, um, and they still got the same name, it's a electric blanket called Linda. Sleep well with Linda. That drove me nuts. I oh, thought, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> so I went to art school. I was much better off at art school. What happened there? Well, I did major in photography and I also majored in textiles, uh, which had been a passion of mine more through my mother's line and photography was more through my father's. So I was quite heavily influenced by them and mum was a really creative soul as well. She was always doing things in the natural fibre world, embroidery, spinning, weaving, dyeing, stitching, and I loved all that too. So I studied photography and I also did textiles and yeah, ended up ended up doing a double degree, and um, really, I was just set up for life from that degree. And I've since done postgraduate studies, diploma, PhD, and all in the photography world. Ella, how did you discover the body to be a worthy subject of your photography? That's a great question because it has actually dominated my photographic life for more than thirty years now. And it all started with one single snapshot that I took of my sister breastfeeding her young daughter, Alyssa, who's now, gosh, at least 33, 34. And, um, yeah, she was just lying on the ground and I was very taken by the intimacy and the closeness of this baby and mother and it just lodged in my brain. And I went off on this big travelling trip after my studies to South America where I was obviously interested in architecture and landscape. But I carried this little photo around with me the whole year in my wallet and uh, something happened. And when I came back to Sydney after that trip, 
I um I had actually had a pregnancy in um, South America and went off to have an abortion, which was really challenging in Chile, which is a Catholic country. I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. And um, I survived. And then I came back, but something had got under my skin. I'd had that photo, I'd had that pregnancy, and suddenly I thought, hmm, I think I'll just photograph that pregnant woman down the street. Hmm, what about so-and-so? She's pregnant. And it just started to lodge there and become an intuitive project. And before I knew it, I was running around asking anybody, did they know anyone who was pregnant? And I'd be photographing them at, at close to nine months pregnant, very huge. And I was fascinated with this um, voluptuous, explosive body that was bursting at the edges and something being on the precipice of change of a transformation from one state to another tell me about the work that that became well that turned into not only my postgraduate studies work at sydney college of the arts but also my very first solo exhibition at stills gallery in paddington which was then a very very new gallery in elizabeth street paddington you might know blender gallery that's in the same premises so uh, that gallery was owned and run by two fantastic women and they um, loved the work and gave me my first solo show. And I was absolutely taken back and shocked at what a chord it struck in the general community. I, I was suddenly um, seen and heard everywhere. So these, uh, the, the works are basically a series of photographs of naked pregnant women shot in various ways. What sort of chord does that strike? Well, I think the main thing about this series was that they were of normal women and they weren't glossed over, they weren't airbrushed, they weren't trying to romanticise pregnancy. So the women's bodies were full of hair and freckles and stretch marks. And while they were in black and white, not colour, you could still see all the markings on the body and the um, strange things that happen. For example, the areola, which is the dark space around a woman's nipple, becomes very dark in pregnancy and sprouts hairs. I mean, heaven forbid, hair on a woman's body. So I think that they were breaking through a stereotype of the romantic notion of pregnancy and women could see themselves and they thought, wow, I, I can actually relate to this. This looks like me. Ella, what can we play now in <laughs> tribute to your very early artistic career? Well, we can play a nice young Jewish girl who went bad. <laughs> Amy Winehouse, Back to Black.
The unmissable vocals of Amy Winehouse there with Back to Black brought into FBI Radio today by artist-photographer Ella Dreyfus. She is my guest on Out of the Box today. Ella, take me to Kyoto, the Japanese city, in 1983. Why did you end up there? Well, Kyoto, that was a huge part of my life um, and it wasn't meant to be. So what happened was I'd had a relationship with a boy, a man, for seven years and when we broke up, I thought, that's it. I've got to get out of the country. Where can I go? I had a girlfriend living in Japan at the time. And I said, that'll do. I'll go there. So I borrowed the money and off I went with my best friend, Deborah. The two of us fronted up in Kyoto with no money, <laughs> no prospects, tapping on doors, tapping on people's shoulders. Where can we get a job? Where can we live? And uh, my friend Lisa, who was living there at the time, helped us find a place to live. And I spent a whole year there in the end. What job did you get? Well, I had three different jobs. I was a model in the art schools, which was great um, because Western white curvy, let's say, girls got work quite easily. Really? Why, what is that? Is it, was that a blossoming pastime? Um, uh, was this is still still life photography? Or? Well, no, no. It was in painting and drawing classes, and I think it was because. In those art schools, they were studying the history of Western art mm. and they were looking for Western models. So uh, they didn't particularly want to paint or draw Japanese women who didn't look like Rubens and the voluptuous forms, but both me and my friend Deborah were very curvy and we got heaps of work. So, yes, I did modelling and also I was an English teacher like most Australians and I loved teaching English and it actually set me on the path of being a teacher for 40 years. And also um, I was a hostess in the nightclubs, in the karaoke bars. Wow. Tell me about that. Oh, well, that was weird. <laughs> how, how did it come about, firstly? Well, mostly because we were desperate and people said, well, you can, get a, you can get a job in a nightclub. So we just went door knocking around Gion, which is the nightclub district of Kyoto, and we had no Japanese except to point at ourselves and say, hostess, hostess, hostess-san. <laughs> That's about as far as it went. By the end of the year, I was actually babbling away and I did learn a lot of Japanese. And uh, the best part about working as a hostess was I got to sing and indulge my little passion. Ella, introduce me to Miss Lola. Oh, yes, Lola-san, Miss Lola. So, uh, yeah, I, I had a little nickname in the club. I was Miss Lola and uh, my friend Deborah was Miss Monica. And we actually were able to sing not just with the karaoke machines and Japanese songs, of which I learnt a lot, a lot of enka. I could sing you some of those, but they're pretty awful. Um, but I loved doing them because you, you could do duets with people. But we had, yes, we had Sensei, a, a pianist, grand piano, white piano in the club. And I got to pick and choose from the catalogue. And my favourite song was Killing Me Softly.
Ella, in 1985, you're hitchhiking around Chile and you find yourself in a tricky predicament in a very heavily Catholic country. What happened? Well, like many young women, we find ourselves pregnant at the wrong time. And I was with my boyfriend, David, and we'd only been together a few months and I thought, well, this really is not the right time to be having a baby. And in, in Sydney, you'd know where to go. Um, it's pretty straightforward if you want to get an abortion. But, of course, I was in a foreign country, and in Santiago, Chile, I did not know how to get an abortion. How did you find out? Well, I did what I, what I would have done in Sydney, which was look up the phone books for feminist organisations, of which there were very few in 1985 in Santiago. However, I did actually find one, and I went and saw them, and I asked, asked for their help and they gave me the name of a couple of doctors and I went and had an appointment. And David came with me, obviously, and we met this doctor in a um, middle-class neighbourhood. And he said, yes, yes, I can do this and it'll cost you this much money in cash, in American dollars, and meet me at this particular hospital. Well, the day we got to the hospital, it was not in a very nice neighbourhood at all. It was actually in a really run-down grotty part of town and there had been earthquakes recently in the city so there was rubble everywhere and it didn't really feel good um but being the kind of girl I am I didn't want a baby so yeah we went in and the hospital was really um as I said uh unclean and not nice and very decrepit and look the thing is um at that time and probably still today I haven't checked abortions were not just illegal but they were totally underground and Probably there were a lot of backyard abortions happening. And like this one, it was done at a, in a place where people wouldn't frequent and where people um, wouldn't want to be seen. And the doctor obviously didn't want his other clientele to know about it. So he was doing it on the side on the weekend, that kind of thing. 
The thing about the abortion which is worth talking about, Joey, is that for many, many years I never told anybody about it. And in fact, I'm talking to you on public radio right now, which is astonishing because I've never, ever spoken about this before. And I'm glad you asked me. And the thing is, um, it caused me a lot of shame. And I think that's really sad to have so much shame about having an abortion because I was an adult woman who had a right to make those decisions. And I'm really glad I did. And I'm fortunate to have two children and I've had five pregnancies in my life. Uh, One abortion back in Chile, a beautiful baby, then another pregnancy and I wasn't ready to become a mother and I had another abortion. And I also had a miscarriage and I had another baby. So um, it is really important that we speak about these things and not go into a cupboard and hide them and feel ashamed because... Pregnancy is part of life and part of women and men's lives. And um, we're very fortunate that we can make decisions about our bodies. And I believe as a feminist and as an adult in the world, um, we should have control over our own bodies. And yet still to this day, even at 59, I can think back to how shamed I felt about that. Ella, tell me about the shock of having a son. Well, that's a great question because as I mentioned before, I was a feminist and I only wanted to have female children because I knew what to do with girls and I knew how to bring them up as good good new feminists in the world. And I actually did have a beautiful daughter called Felix. And uh, when I was pregnant the second time, I thought, oh, please, God, don't give me a boy. We don't want boys. What do we do with them? <laughs> so, yeah, um, so as, as luck would have it, I gave birth to a boy, Axel, and uh, it was quite a traumatic birth. I won't go into the details now, but nevertheless, both me and my husband, David, fell head over heels in love with him, and uh, he has turned out to be a great feminist. <sighs> Ella, in 2005, you're watching um, Axel. He's now 12 years old, playing soccer on the fields in the inner west, and an idea for a photographic project comes into your mind. Take me there. Well, I actually stood on the soccer fields for, um, gosh, eight years before that idea cropped up because Axel was probably playing from about age five. And I've got beautiful memories of him and his friend William standing there as five-year-olds holding hands on the field, wandering around. (laughs) We're going, the ball, the ball, it's over there. So, Ellie, you've become not only a a mother of a son, but also a soccer mum at that. (laughs) I got dragged in kicking and screaming. I know I used to take along my knitting or my newspaper and I'd sit around and he'd go, Mum, Mum, look at me. And did you see when I passed it to Seb? And what about when I passed it to Tom? That beautiful song there was Beautiful Boy from John Lennon from his final album, Double Fantasy. But not quite the final song of Ella Dreyfus. The artist photographer is my guest on Out of the Box for some moments longer. Ella, what drove you to Germany in 2017, the country where your father had been expelled from at the age of just 12? Called Under 12. And I had it at a small gallery in Balmain. And on the wall were all the um, individual shots. So basically the boys were topless. They had their shorts on, obviously, in the studio, but topless from the chest up and just very pristine black and white works. What was it like capturing those? Oh, it was beautiful. I mean, they you know they don't keep still for very long, so <laughs> that was a bit challenging. But look, the, the images were lovely and they were very poignant. And, um, yeah, everybody enjoyed the show. However, um, the weekend before the show was about to open couple of the parents started to get nervous and there was a lot of phone calling and discussion and I I ended up withdrawing two of the works from the show Um, and in fact I rang the gallery the day before and I said look can you just take those two off the wall the parents are actually a little unhappy and they're a little anxious. Why why were they anxious? Well one of the parents said to me I didn't have permission which wasn't true I certainly had lots of permission and uh, the other one said well, he just got terribly upset. So on the one hand, there was a kind of bureaucratic reason and the other was an emotional reason. But I think drilling down into it, there was some kind of fear that harm would befall their children if their picture went on display in a public gallery. Ella, what happened when they finished high school, these boys? Well, I um, actually contacted them all again. Most of them had continued to play soccer through the high school years, so I knew where they were. And I waited until they were 18 and called them all back. 
And I said, come over, boys, let's uh, and I put on some beers and a party. And we did a second shoot. And then in 2012, I had the second series. Under twenty, under twelve. And what what was like? What was it? What was that like? Oh, it was quite different. So this different. is seven years apart. You've recaptured. Mm. Tell me about exhibiting that. Well, that was very exciting. Um, some some of the young men couldn't come; they were away, and some didn't want to come because they were mortified. And some came and showed off and preened and punced around everywhere and were so proud of themselves. Oh, wow! Now fast forward to last year. What was it like tracking them down for a third time? Well, that was a bit harder, um, but I had warned them at 18. I said, I will be contacting you again. And when I rang one of them last year, he said, oh, seven years. Did that go by so quickly? So, yeah, they were expecting a call from me. And over a six-month period, I actually met them again and did some portraits. And uh, I've been working on that show, and we're about to launch in May, and that's called Under 27. So what does the latest instalment look like? Well, it's obviously even more fascinating than before, as you can imagine, because we're going from age 11 up to age 18 and now to age 25. So they are really significant jumps in people's lives. And what's so interesting when you look at the images is some have hardly changed and you look at three next to each other and particularly in the eyes and you go yep same person look bang 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 hasn't changed a bit other ones you honestly wouldn't recognize they've radically changed and um so you know this is just the um the visual the the representation of them but of course for me personally meeting them was really lovely and interesting as well see who they're becoming is there a point to an exhibition like this or is it just something that's beautiful Oh, there's a lot of points to this exhibition. Um, certainly for me to be focusing on on men, and young men in particular, who are often an overlooked category, um, and to be somehow giving people an opportunity to see a side of young masculinity that they mightn't often see. Because the pictures are quite quiet and they're sensitive and the boys look quite vulnerable in them. And I think that for young men all men, there's a, um, a pressure, you know, to perform and be macho and to be tough and to be physically strong. And um, in these pictures, you see another side to them. And I, I feel like that's a really important contribution to the general conversation we're in today. Is there an intention for them to recongregate when they're in their early 30s? Every seven years. <laughs> Ella, what can we play now? Well, I think the best song to play would be Beautiful Boy by John Lennon because that really sums up the, um, the love that John and Yoko had for their little baby, Sean. And as I said before, I just Close your eyes my young son. Have no fear The monster's gone He's on the run And your daddy's here Getting better and better Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Beautiful boy Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Beautiful boy Out on the ocean Sailing Cross the street Take my hand 
life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Beautiful, 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 beautiful boy. Beautiful, 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 beautiful boy. Before you go to sleep. Say a little prayer every day in every way. It's getting better and better. That's a really great question because when I went to Germany two years ago, it was a really life-changing experience for me. I had avoided going to Europe my whole adult life because of the early experiences of my father in World War II and the Holocaust against Jews and other peoples. And I had avoided it. And all those friends of mine who did the big Europe trip, uh, I wouldn't go there. I went to other places, Japan, South America, Israel, England, but no, I wouldn't go to real Europe, to Germany or Holland or Austria. However, the time came when I just felt, yep, let's go. And I actually applied for and was lucky enough to receive an artist residency in Wiesbaden, which was the city that my great-grandparents had lived in. What was the artwork? The artwork was actually called Walking in Wiesbaden. And what it was was a series of art installations I made in the city itself where I wrote the names of my immediate family, father, uncle, grandparents, and all the great-grandparents. And I put them up in city streets with a phrase, and I'll tell you what it said in German. For example, my name is Richard, my name is Richard, ich bin Jude, I am a Jew. Or, wir sind Dreyfus, or wir sind Juden, we are Jews. Unsere Namen sind Dreyfus, our names are Dreyfus. So I actually was declaring and reclaiming their heritage in the streets where they had walked as adults. What sort of response do you get to an exhibition as confronting as that? When the exhibition was shown in the Aktivist Museum Spiegelgasse für Deutsche Jüdische Geschichte, which is called the Active Museum for German Jewish History, I got a fantastic response. People were very, very interested in the history of my family and the fact that I had come as an artist all the way from Australia and made a contribution to the culture of the city of Wiesbaden. However, that was in the exhibition itself. And you would imagine that people come to galleries because they're interested in art. But on the streets, when I was making the installation, I would say I got 95% uh, silence. People ignored me, they walked past, they put their head down, they didn't want to engage. And actually that was fine with me because I was nervous as hell about writing the words I am a Jew and slapping them up on the walls in a city with no permission at all. How close did you get to visiting the house where your family had lived in Wiesbaden? Well, I had the address. Uncle George had given me the address. It was uh, number 30 Richard Wagner Street. And I went there on a very, very cold day, the 1st of January, in fact, and it was freezing, it was snowing. And I stood there and I looked... And I looked down at the pavement and embedded in the pavement is a bronze plaque, a Stolpersteiner, which means stumbling stones. And it's a memorial. And all over Germany, there are these bronze plaques, memorials to Jews who were deported and uh, murdered in concentration camps. And there is, there is one outside this house. So I looked down. I was quiet, a bit overcome, as you can imagine. And I took a few photos and I left. However, about a month later... I I decided to go back and I got up the courage to knock on the door this time and I was on my own 
and an old man opened the door and let me in. And I, I introduced myself and he was pretty nervous and not really that interested in who I was and why I was there. But after some time, he did soften and I said to him, it would mean so much to me if you could show me around this house that my great-grandparents owned. And, and my dad came to visit when he was a young boy. Tell me about entering the house. Well, it was a beautiful home, Joey, and uh, it was a very cultured home. It was a large home full of, you know, antiques and interesting furniture, artworks, collections. And the man, Dr. Axel Schultz, Axel, the same name as my son. I know, amazing. He, um, he walked me around very slowly. He had a bad back and we went up and down into every part of the house. And when we went downstairs, outdoors into the garage, he said, would you like to see the bunker? <laughs> and I went, ah, oh, I don't know. Do I want to go into a bunker in the back of a garage in a dark hallway with a German man I've just met and nobody in the whole world knows I'm here? And did I go? Yes. <laughs> I went in, I thought, just trust the guy. Just trust him, just trust him. And sure enough, it was his wine cellar, and we had a look, and we left. And anyway, we went back upstairs, we went into the whole house, and he took me upstairs even to the attic where we found something quite remarkable. Tell me what you found there. Well, we went into this little room, an annex off the attic, and he said, this was where the maid slept. And it was a kind of empty room, uh, just a chair and some floral carpet, and then up against the wall was an old bed base, uh, metal with springs and a wooden frame. And there was something written on it. And I went over and had a look and it said, Von Berlin lehrte Bahnhof nach Elberfeld, with a date. And that means from Berlin uh, railway station to Elberfeld. And I thought, hang on a minute, Elberfeld, that's actually where this family came from, which is a suburb in Wuppertal near Dusseldorf, and I said, what the hell, what's this bed all about? And he goes, oh, well, that was here, that was here in the house when I bought it 37 years ago. And we looked at each other, and I said, do you think this bed could have belonged to my family? And he said, natürlich, of course. And we just fell about, we weren't quite sure what to make of it, but um, I was totally overcome, Joey, by emotion, by um, tears, by laughter, because... I went back to Germany thinking everyone was either gassed to death or buried somewhere or lost out of my life and there was nothing left, no traces at all. And yet here in this attic in the middle of the suburbs in Wiesbaden was a bed that my family had probably slept in. Even my father might have slept in it. It was just a single bed base and it just filled me with joy. Ella, what can we play to finish this episode of Out of the Box today? Well, what would give me great pleasure to play now, Joey, is a song written by my uncle George Dreyfus, who I would like to pay my respects to as an elder of the community. He's 90 years old, and he's the last remaining surviving member of the German family. He lives in Melbourne, and many people would know him, and uh, he has composed hundreds and hundreds of pieces for film and television, as well as serious symphonies and other music and this is called the sons of the anzac it's a peace theme and i really love to play this because it's about war and a lot of my history as many australians histories are embedded in wars in other places and also it's about sons and my new work is all about sons so for me it's a very special piece and with that, I'd like to thank my producers, uh, Bree Jones and Nicole DiPaolo very much. And Ella Dreyfus, thank you so much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. My pleasure, Jerry. Thank you for having me.
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.